Well, Morena Tato, good morning, everybody, um, and many thanks to Marie Curie Scotland for inviting me to speak about the New Zealand experience. So, when you think of New Zealand, you might think of images like this. So, I took this in Nelson on the South Island of New Zealand earlier this year. Or you might think of well-known facts, such as the fact that New Zealand has more sheep than people. It's about six to one at the last count. Or you might even think of less well-known facts, that, including um, the, the fact, which I found really surprising, that New Zealand has the most pipe bands per capita of any country in the world, including Scotland. I'm guessing that might be a controversial one. Yes. Um, but I think um, I'd hazard a guess to suggest what you won't think about um, is this. I certainly haven't seen this in any of the tourist information promoting New Zealand. Um, but this was the conclusion of a study um, that was published and um, conducted in The Economist, which looked at quality of death internationally and concluded that New Zealand was the third best place in the world to die. I think there are a few issues with that study. Um, perhaps most fundamentally the underlying premise that you can use the same measures to look at quality of dying in different countries without thinking about the cultural context within which ideas about a good death are formulated. But I think it's helpful um, to give you some sort of benchmark as to where New Zealand is, particularly in terms of palliative care development. Um, so New Zealand has quite a well-developed um, network of palliative care services. There are about 35 hospices in New Zealand. The first opened in Wellington in 1979. Um, and there are about 14 um, hospital palliative care services. And I keep saying about because these, um, these services are always in flux. And one of the issues we have in New Zealand is um, capturing um, these sort of data. But in line with other countries, including, I believe, Scotland, there are also issues. So the coverage of palliative care services is not even, with rural areas particularly at risk of not having access. Um, and we also have issues with an aging clinical workforce and particular problems with, with reappointing um, palliative medicine consultants and, and filling those sorts of posts. I think also in line with other countries, we're on rather an uncertain journey in terms of where we're headed with palliative care development. So like many other countries, we have a rapidly aging population. Um, with palliative care need increasingly concentrated amongst people age over 85. And obviously there are, there, that's a, it's a cause for celebration that, that people are living longer, um, but there are obviously complexities in terms of palliative care management um, within that age group. Um, in New Zealand, um, you might also be aware that we're a bicultural society, so the rights of Māori are enshrined under the Treaty of Waitangi, uh, which was signed in 1840. And my research group is bicultural as a, as a reflection of that and as a reflection of the need for all palliative care development moving forward to be responsive to the aspirations and needs of Māori. And Auckland is also one of the most culturally and ethnically diverse cities in the world. So as well as the needs of Māori, we have rapidly growing um, Asian populations, particularly Chinese and Korean people, and Pacific Island populations as well. So these are all things to factor into thinking about um, palliative care management moving forward. And in case you're interested and you're using these slides as a bit of a guide to where you might want to go in New Zealand on holiday, <laughs> this is um, Murawai on the west coast um, of, of Auckland. And it's one of the many beach roads in New Zealand. 
So my colleague Heather McLeod did a projection of palliative care need in New Zealand for the Ministry of Health. Um, and as you can see, you don't really need to look at the detail, but just the shape of the curve is really striking. So she concluded that need for palliative care will almost double in the next 20 years, so in a very short time scale, and that need will be particularly concentrated, as I said, in that over 85 age group. She also looked at how need um, would differ between settings based on age-specific um, data around where people were currently being cared for, concluding that the need would grow most rapidly within age residential care with an 84.2% increase in the next 20 years, which is really significant. Um, just over half within hospice, and that's including inpatient and hospice services provided in the community, which is obviously the bulk of the work hospice are doing, and then about 37.5% in public hospitals. And I'll return to this issue around age residential care as I move forward, because I think this might be one of the the differences that we're seeing between what's happening in New Zealand and what might be happening in Scotland. So, like all other um, departments of health and Ministry of Health, um, there has been thought now given to what needs to happen in terms of palliative care management in the future. Um, I should say this is Barbara Broom, so she's the consumer representative on the palliative care advisory panel which I chair. And we recently advised the Ministry of Health um, in preparing and conducting a review of what was happening at the moment and in developing an action plan in relation to what we thought the priorities collectively should be for palliative care development into the future. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of resonances for you with the priorities that were identified. So the first was around increasing emphasis on primary palliative care or generalist palliative care, improving quality in all settings, and so this really spoke to a recognition as well of the need. We kept talking about the need to focus on hospital. To grow the capability of family, carers and communities. So you can see it's moving a bit more into a public health space. Um, we desperately need to know more about the experiences of people with palliative care needs and their families. And also ensuring stronger strategic connections. And one example of that is these actions are also written into the health of older people strategy. So I think um, for us it was important that it wasn't just a palliative care issue, that there was recognition that there were other, other bodies um, who should be taking this on. So moving to hospitals. <laughs> I know you're all waiting on tenterhooks to hear what the, the results from New Zealand will be. Um, so I'm actually, so I'll talk, talk about the study um, aims briefly and findings, but just to alert you to the fact I'm going to talk about these quite briefly because I want to spend most of my time exploring what I think the differences might be. So I think you're well rehearsed in terms of what the aims of the study were. Um, and obviously we used the same census date as was used in Scotland and Denmark. Um, we, we did also slightly extend the findings of the Scottish study and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how we did that as well. But when David um, invited me to take part, I thought this was a fantastic opportunity to see how, we could, how results compared between countries. Because I think, as Richard said when he introduced this morning, we know very little, really, um, in terms of international comparative information about what's going on in terms of palliative care um, management, end-of-life care um, in different countries. 
So the Ministry of Health provided us with um, data for all publicly funded hospitalizations for the census date. So that comprised demographic information, age, gender, deprivation of area of residence, and prioritized self-identified ethnicity. So in New Zealand, um, under the, in the census, um, you can determine how you want your ethnicity to be defined. So it's self-identified self ethnicity. In terms of hospitalization, we looked at admission date and type, discharge date and type, length of stay, speciality and diagnosis. And then obviously we collected mortality information as well. Okay, so these are the findings. <laughs> so we had 6,074 publicly funded patients staying overnight in New Zealand hospitals on the census date which I think is quite a lot lower than the Scottish and the Danish figures. Um, you can see that slightly more women than men were represented. Um, and 42% of patients were under 60. And I think this is another difference that I'll talk to a little bit more in a minute, that we, we had a younger um, hospital inpatient population, certainly than the Scottish study. So by 12 months, we had 14.5% of those inpatients having died which is quite a big difference, isn't it, to the, to the Scottish study. So it was really interesting. Um, and you can see that 1.6% had died by seven days, almost 11% by six months, um, and 14.5% by 12 months. And during the index stay, this is where we saw another big difference, um, we had 135 patients, or 2.1% die. And that accounted for almost 15% of the total deaths within the 12-month period. So if you're anything like me, you might find it hard to absorb statistics when they're <laughs> presented um, in, in forums like this. I'm sure lots of you are completely au fait with doing that. But for those of you who are like me, I've just summarized um, them briefly. So the headline findings are that 14.5% of patients had died within 12 months and 2.1% had died during the index stay. And so that compared to 30% of patients in Scotland, 8% um, during the index stay. And unfortunately, um, I, did, I haven't got the, the Danish figures up yet um, to compare, but um, I think Lena was saying that that was 22% for Denmark. And how many during the index stay, Lena? Um, Sorry. I think it was 66 persons. Okay. The index stay. Mm. I haven't calculated during the index stay. Oh, okay, okay. <coughs> Sorry, I know questions like that are the ones you don't want to, <laughs> to get, aren't they? <laughs> um, so this is really interesting, I think, because it, it really paints a, a different picture of hospital use in New Zealand, certainly to what's going on in Scotland. Um, so we looked at predictors of dying within 12 months. We did some modelling. Um, in line with Scotland, we identified older age, which you'd expect. Um, living in an area of high deprivation, Although I should point out for the New Zealand data, this actually became non-significant when we added history of cancer and being of Māori ethnicity into the model. And then the additional variables that we looked at were history of cancer. Again, you know, you would expect that to be a predictor. And also being of Māori ethnicity. Um, again, it's, it's not unexpected because it points to the health inequalities um, still experienced by Māori as a result of, of colonisation. Um, and maybe particularly the higher prevalence of chronic conditions amongst Māori and the fact that we know um, that many Māori present late 
to health services and so are more likely to present at a late stage, particularly with, with um, late stage cancer. So we are left with this picture of, you know, we know it's different, but why might that be? Because I think this is where the interesting issues for policy come in. And I should certainly start out with the caveat by saying, you know, the study wasn't set up to answer the question of why. So these are um, my speculations and, and following discussions with my colleagues as well. I'd certainly be interested in, in some of your thoughts. So I have three different um, explanations that I just wanted to, to talk through um, briefly. So the first explanation is around the different age structure of hospital users, and, and I've talked a little bit about that already. Um, so 73% of Scottish inpatients were over 60, and 32% were over 80. And that compared to 42% of the New Zealand inpatients, of whom 17% were over 80. I think it does speak to differences it obviously speaks to differences in, in the nature of the hospital populations, but also the age structures of the populations are different. Um, and this is largely due to the high proportion of immigration we have in New Zealand. Um, so there's quite a bulge in um, sort of adults of, of migrant age represented in there. So it is quite sort of common sense, and you might say there's you know, not much modification you can do, but I think it's important to acknowledge, because increasingly um, I think we look at end-of-life interventions, um, and certainly in New Zealand there's been a tendency to look at what's happening in, in England and in Scotland and think, oh, that looks great, let's just do that here. Um, but I think this is pointing to um, not just the wider cultural differences, um, but there's also some quite other sort of more fundamental issues relating to the demographic structures of the different populations. So explanation two. So this is where it gets even, even more speculative, but um, bear with me. So this was really looking um, to explain the difference in the number of people dying during the index day in New Zealand compared to Scotland. Um, and thinking about, well, might there be better mechanisms for enabling people to transition out of hospitals at end of life in New Zealand um, compared to Scotland? And I must say, we don't have the exact data sets to answer this, but I, I have been involved in previous research that I think points to some potentially interesting factors and actually overall um, indicates that in both countries and in the UK generally, um, we need to be doing a bit better in terms of our hospital palliative care management, as David alluded to earlier. So we conducted a census study in New Zealand, and this involved um, a a review, so it was a case note review, of all inpatients present on one date within the hospital. And we used the gold standard framework prognostic indicator guide to identify patients who, according to those diagnostic and prognostic criteria, um, would be considered likely to die within 12 months. And so from that, we identified that about one-fifth of the hospital population met those criteria. Um, and we then found that two-thirds of those had died within a year which I think is actually quite consistent with, with the um, wider hospital data for the whole of New Zealand that I presented. But in terms of there being something very special in terms of palliative care management in hospitals in New Zealand, I don't think we really found that. So you might think if there's really good advanced care planning, then that might sort of facilitate transfer back into the community. But we found that um, only 
1.9% of, of patients had an advanced care plan. There was a higher, high rate of referral to hospi hospital specialist palliative care. Um, and th this is interesting, it's higher than in other studies, and I'll, I'll show you some data in a minute. Um, so there is potential that this might be helping facilitate transfer into the community. Um, we also did a survey, though, of healthcare professionals working within the hospital. Um, so this is one acute hospital in Auckland in, in New Zealand. Um, and from that, we found that almost three quarters felt that they would benefit from additional um, education and training in palliative care, which was really interesting. <coughs> and that paper's been published if you're interested in looking at it in any more detail. And so unfortunately, we didn't replicate this study in Scotland. It might be something that somebody wants to take on. Um, but I do have data for England. But I should say that my mother's Welsh, so I know that there are real um, barriers or real um, problems with assuming that the Scottish experience is necessarily the same as the English experience. But I thought I'd show it to you um, because I think there might be some commonalities and maybe you could reflect on that. So there was, we used a slightly different method, and that was due to ethics committee requirements. Um, but we ended up with 185 patients who met criteria for palliative care need, according to the GSF. Um, and that was in um, one acute hospital in Sheffield. Um, it's the full Monty there, in case you're struggling for the reference. Um, and in Lancaster, below. Um, and from that, we found that no evidence of advanced care plans. I should say, this was a few years ago now. Um, but certainly in New Zealand, we've looked at more recent data and still there is very little evidence of advanced care planning actually happening. I don't know what the situation is in England. Much lower rates of referral to specialist palliative care. <coughs> and again, almost two thirds of um, healthcare professionals identifying that they'd like more training and education. But slightly different methods, so we have to be careful in drawing conclusions. Um, and again, that's been published if you're interested, but I think it does point to the fact that you know, there's, why, there's advanced care planning, that certainly at that time, wasn't really happening um, on either side of the globe. Um, there might be more use of specialist palliative care services in hospitals in New Zealand. Um, but again, that was just in one hospital, and that might be atypical of the rest of New Zealand. And we also did some qualitative work around both studies, and I was glad that David mentioned the need to look kind of in a more nuanced way around what's happening um, to complement the, the numbers that we are producing. And I thought I'd mention this because what was really interesting was that um, this was done at the time when the um, end of life program focusing on hospitals had recently been published. And they published a guide to how you should manage a transition to a palliative care, um, sort of um, transition to palliative care, sorry, um, within acute hospitals. But what we found was that that wasn't happening at all so there really wasn't any evidence um, that patients were receiving this sort of transition that was envisaged in policy terms. Um, and perhaps most striking, most shocking to me certainly was a number of um, professionals we spoke to talking about the fact they don't discuss prognosis. And I think this is a really fundamental issue to think about because lots of the interventions that we would like to introduce um, are predicated on the fact, as, as David said earlier, we can identify people for whom death might not be, might be unexpected, um, sorry, might be expected, um, and that we're prepared to do something about that. And obviously that's, that's not happening at the moment. But again, it would be interesting to, to repeat this study um, and see if there's been change and to see what the situation would be in Scotland as well. So explanation three. Um, 
And I think this one's really interesting. So this is around residential aged care, potentially substituting for acute hospital as a site of end-of-life care in New Zealand. Um, and we've actually got quite a lot of evidence in relation to this. So I should say this isn't an aged residential care facility in New Zealand before you all cash in your pensions and decide to, to come over. It just kind of captured the essence of what one should be. It's actually um, a beach hotel in Uruguay. <laughs> but it was a prompt for me to tell you a little bit about residential aged care in New Zealand. Um, so there are three main different types. Um, there's rest home level care that accounts for about 57% of, of beds. Um, and that requires healthcare staff to be on site all the time, um, but that's HCAs typically, and there's only intermittent um, RN support. About 31% of beds are in what is confusingly called private hospitals, um, but they're nothing like public hospitals. It just means they have to have 24-hour RN cover, but they don't have a doctor on site. And then there's a much smaller number of dementia units and psychogeriatric um, units as well. Um, we know that about 5.5% of people in New Zealand over 65 are in age residential care. There are some issues in, in these sorts of estimates. Um, at one point it was thought to be slightly higher than other countries, but more recently it's thought to be about the same. We also know um, from work led by my colleague Michael Boyd that the proportion of people entering um, age residential care hasn't changed over the last 10 years, but dependency levels are changing. So it seems more people are um, transitioning into aged care later, um, but their dependency levels at that point are high. So about two-thirds would be classified as very dependent. Excuse me. And so this is when it starts to get a little bit interesting, because this is international comparison of place of death for people over 65, um, and a study we did led by um, my colleague Joe Broad. And again, that's been published if you're interested. So you can see that New Zealand's down here. So in terms of hospital deaths at this point, um, there were 34% in hospital, 31% in residential aged care, and 35% in other, including private home. So in Scotland, um, at the time this was done, and I should say she had to identify the most um, recent data that was available at that time that was broken down um, for place of death for people over 65. But at that point, there was 59% of people over 65 dying in hospital and 18% in residential aged care and 23% in other. So you can certainly see from those data, it seems as though hospital is a much more significant site of end-of-life care and of death in, in Scotland than it is in New Zealand, with residential aged care um, assuming more importance in New Zealand. But what that doesn't tell you is that really interesting question around, well, how many people are actually living in age residential care at the time of their transfer into hospital, and that's where they subsequently die? So Joe led some more work looking at that. Um, and that was really interesting as well. You can see um, that if you added in the, the um, sorry, there's 38% over 65 who are dying in residential aged care, but then if you add in the 9% who are living in age residential care but actually died in hospital, you've got almost 50% of people over 65 um, living in a place of age residential care at their time of death. And if you look at women over 85, um, you can see that that's approaching three quarters. So really significant. And so we, we did some more work as well um, kind of interrogating this a bit more, led by my colleague Martin Connolly, who's a geriatrician, looking at survival after admission from acute hospital into age residential care. 
And our conclusion was that essentially age residential care is acting as a de facto hospice within the New Zealand system in that people are having very short admissions. So you can see that certainly from discharge into a private hospital, 11% are, are living only two weeks or less. So I think this is really interesting for, for a number of reasons. Um, I think in terms of um, it, there's not an issue with delayed discharge in New Zealand, anecdotally, I don't have any data on that, um, but certainly colleagues say that it's very easy to get age residential care placements, so I don't know if that's something um, that's, that's different. Um, I know there are issues with delayed discharge. <laughs> I think Scottish Audit Office, um, didn't they conclude that over 300,000 bed days were, were lost to delayed discharge? So that might be something that's going on. Um, but I think it also calls into question, certainly for us, issues around, you know, we often conflate residential aged care with home, but if you've only been there for two weeks, those sorts of comparisons might be slightly problematic. Um, but I think it, it does point to some interesting trends if, as I say, this is quite speculative. So what we found is a greater proportion of older people die in residential aged care in New Zealand and Scotland. Many of these stays um, at end of life are very short. So it supports the argument that in New Zealand, older people are being transferred from hospital to die in this setting. But I think crucially what we don't know um, is that, you know, do these different settings or potential difference in setting actually translate into better outcomes for, for patients and families? Um, and is, you know, from a health system perspective, is this a more efficient model of care? So that would be something really exciting to explore into the future. So I just wanted to finish by thinking a little bit um, about where I've got to and thinking about what this means from a policy point of view. And again, if you're interested, this is Fiordland, um, just on the drive up to Teano, which is a very beautiful part of New Zealand. So I think the first um, conclusion is that policy actually does need to address palliative care in hospitals. And I say this because my colleague and PhD student Jackie Robinson just completed a policy review um, and she identified five countries who met the criteria for high integrated level of palliative care services. Um, and she was looking at how, policy, how hospitals are discussed within those policies, what role is envisaged for hospital um, and what improvements are thought to be needed in terms of hospitals moving forward. And what was really interesting was that actually hospital wasn't really mentioned at all apart from somewhere to avoid. Um, so there was no um, writing around, you know, how should hospitals be improved moving forward um, in terms of palliative care delivery. Um, that, you know, there was no innovative thinking um, around the sorts of interventions that David mentioned earlier. So I think that's the most fundamental starting point, isn't it? That, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that these data are showing that hospital is an important site of end-of-life management um, and policy needs to think about what role hospitals should play within the whole system of care. And a lot of the policies talked about avoidability as, as the main issue around hospital admissions. Um, but we've done quite a lot of work in England and in New Zealand and our conclusion was that most admissions under current situation um, are not avoidable for people with palliative care needs. So there had been quite a lot of writing, you know, that we could save billions 
by avoiding hospitalizations at end of life, and it would be a win-win because people could be cared for at home. Um, I think there is some potential if there was a reconfiguration of, of community services. Um, but when we actually looked at sort of current admissions and had um, clinicians looking at those admissions and saying, are they avoidable, um, their conclusion was no. And the other interesting piece of the puzzle was, you know, the, the extent to which admissions were driven by patient and family wishes as well. And the fact, you know, that, that if we want to avoid admissions, it speaks more to a need for a wider cultural shift, not just looking at what, what's happening with services. But as one person said to me, you know, I'm iller than I've ever felt in my life. I've been told my whole life if I feel ill, I should phone 999 and go to hospital. So why am I being told now that they don't want me in hospital? And Jackie and her PhD work has also started to explore this a bit more. I'm doing the first study looking at what the benefits of hospital are for people with palliative care needs. Because again, she did a, a systematic review and identified that you know, we, all the research today has focused on the negatives, the negative aspects of experience. But they, she, she identified that for, the, for this group of patients, actually, um, they desired hospital admissions. And these were some of the reasons for that. Um, really interesting findings around safety, so people not feeling safe at home, but feeling safe in hospital. Um, that, I mean, they were a bit perplexed by the question because they're like, well, you know, I had a problem that needed fixing and, and it's fixed and now I can leave. So kind of uh, speaking to the fact that people have palliative care needs for, for a very long period of time now often, um, and, and a hospital admission can be very appropriate within that context. And then I think these wider cultural issues as well. You know, if I don't go to hospital, I might die, um, which is really interesting. And she's just extended that work with some quantitative work. Um, an interesting finding to come out of that was that um, feelings of safety were particularly associated with being of a lower socioeconomic group um, and being <coughs> older as well. So I think it points to the hospital fulfilling specific functions for, for specific groups of people. So I know it's your job to ask us questions um, at the end, but I just wanted to pose a few of my own as well, because I think the questions we need to be asking are what, you know, what do we actually want the role of the hospital to be at end of life? And I don't think this is just a health services professional researcher um, debate. I mean, this is, this is a wider debate, isn't it? It's about you know, the issues that actually David was talking about earlier. What, what is the role of hospitals within contemporary society? And then what do we need for this to be achieved? And as I said, I don't think this is just a service question. This is also looking at the resources within our communities, how well we're supporting carers. And then for us researchers, you know, what research is needed to support these discussions? And what's the, the value and the role of studies such as the one that, that we did? And so I will leave you there. I'd like to thank uh, my co-authors. Thank you again to Marie Curie for inviting me. And if you're interested in what we're up to in New Zealand, um, that's the address for our blog. And we'd always love to hear from you. And if you want to come and visit, then just give me a shout. Thank you very much for your time.